0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together.
1: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Thank you, Wes. Uh, Thank you, Taylor and Kaylee. An amazing ministry you guys are a part of. It's really exciting. I was talking with Taylor this past week. He said they, they went to 50 residents' houses on like a Wednesday night or something this past week and welcomed them as new residents. And so what a, just an amazing way uh, to get to know people, to encourage them in the gospel, especially during this time when people are so isolated. Just what a great thing to do. So, and, it's, and the good news is that any of us can be a part of it. As they mentioned, any of these events, it's so easy to be a part of. And so if you're looking for just a great opportunity I would recommend that one for sure. The one thing we left out, though, is probably uh, the thing that's most important to Taylor right now that he is the manager of our North Bible Church softball team, right? That went to the championship in the D League on Thursday nights at Horizon Park this past week, which really isn't that big a deal. It was like five teams. But we made the championship game, right? Yeah. So I'm sure that's what's most important to Taylor right now, even. But. Thanks, guys. Great to hear from you. Great to see you. So, what a week, huh? How are you guys doing this week? I feel like we've been saying that almost every week of this past year, 2020, but certainly this past week is kind of on its own level, especially historically with all that we have experienced uh, this past week. But honestly, given the year that we've been through, I mean, in some ways, uh, could we ex- have expected anything different? I mean, it's just par for the course for what we've been facing this year, of course. And I think sometimes you just kind of have to laugh When you think about uh, things sometimes, it just kind of helps you get out of it a little bit. I know that I did a lot this week in between like checking the decision desk updates all throughout the week. I was also checking social media for all the great memes that were popping up. Did you guys see all these if you're on social media? Um, And it gave me kind of an opportunity to just kind of laugh through some of this stuff, which I felt like was very healing for me. It was very therapeutic. And so I thought, you know, why, why don't I just bring a, few, a handful of those memes that I really enjoyed for you this morning. If you need this kind of thing, if you need a little therapy this morning, a little laughter therapy, I brought a few of these here with me this morning. You may have seen these. You may not have seen them. Let's see. Let's, let's go through these. First of all, I saw one that was like a put up, I think it was a, a coloring that a, a young child had done, and their mom or something had put it up. On, and said basically this is, what we, this is what the Electoral College looks like. Here's what we know so far. As you can see, there's just colors all over the place. None of it makes any sense whatsoever. I also saw one that was a, a kind of a reference to one of my favorite movies, the movie Groundhog Day, in reference to the repetition of Tuesday happening over and over and over again, it seemed like. It was Election Day every day for like an entire week this past week. Related to that, of course, in 2020, I saw this one as well. And I thought was really funny. From the year that brought you six months of April, welcome to Tuesday, part three. I thought that one was really good. And then of all this stress, we're talking about how this has kind of been an anxious time, especially this past week. I saw this one posted by uh, one lady in particular. She said this, with all this stress eating, I'll be at 270 before either candidate will be. And then, of course, a big topic was the count, right? How do we get, are we getting the right count? Are we getting everybody's vote counted? Are we counting the right votes? And so we saw a lot of suggestions for how we should do that better. I personally like this one the best, maybe. Thought it had a lot of logic to it from John Christ. Can everyone just go back to their polling location and turn their sticker back in? Maybe we can count that way. Thought that had a lot of logic to it. Maybe that would work. And then, of course, anytime we talk about the count, we got to bring out our friend from Sesame Street the count the counting expert right and then finally uh let's make fun of nevada a little bit there were plenty of those that were making fun of nevada out of all the states you think nevada would be faster at counting now if you're from nevada i'm sorry but it almost feels like Nevada's never going to end up counting all their votes and so i thought that one was hilarious but hopefully that brings you <laughs> it makes you feel a little bit better uh, this morning, I know it made me feel a little bit better as I went through these this past week, but of course, as good as these things make us feel, right, it's not always just a laughing matter. The things that we're engaged in right now, the reason why sometimes it makes us so concerned is that, is that we are dealing with some real issues in a real world that have real consequences as a result of the decisions that we make and the things that happen around us. In an election like this, I think it makes it all the more important to understand how important proper good judgment is and discernment now is, especially right now. And I would ask you the question, because good judgment and discernment is so important right now in terms of how we engage our world, where is the best place for us to find that? Where can we find that? Do we find it in the media? Well, good luck with that. Do we find it in our political leaders? I think we've kind of seen the experience of that doesn't always go so well. How about social media? Probably not the best place. In fact, I'd beg you not to get your <laughs> knowledge and your judgment from social media. In fact, uh, I don't usually do this from the pulpit, but if you, uh, there is a uh, documentary on Netflix right now called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you guys have seen that or not. Um, Just in case you haven't seen it or if you don't have Netflix, let me give you a quick synopsis of it. In fact, I would suggest you watch it if you have Netflix for your own sake. If you have kids who are on social media, it's really good. But let me give you a quick synopsis of this. This It's an illustration really of why it is so important for us right now to have good judgment and discernment in the way that we're engaging our world. If you haven't seen the documentary, essentially what the documentary is is they sit down a bunch of people who used to work at these big social media companies like Facebook, Facebook, Uh, like Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. And these are some of the guys who were most influential in the early days in some of these social media uh, companies. In some cases, they were charged with being the ones who were the marketing executives or working on ways to get people engaged in social media. So they really know what they were talking about. And now, most of them left those those environments and that sector because they began to see issues that became moral issues with the way that these companies were uh, attracting viewers and keeping people Um, attracted to their sites and essentially what they say is that they developed and they were part of developing actually these algorithms that were based on two things and these algorithms that are used by social media companies essentially do two things the algorithms that decide what you see when you open up your Facebook page are based on two things one it's based on the things that they already know that you like so that as you participate in Facebook or Instagram and you like things or you repost things, Facebook actually makes a note of that. That algorithm programs it and then it begins to basically form a brand or a profile for you so that it begins to put things in front of you that you really would want to see over and over and over again. It's a simple business model, really. What they're trying to do is to keep you on their site as much as possible because how do they make their money? They make it through advertising. So the more ads you see, the more people who stay on their site for longer, the more money they're going to make. And so they're going to give you the things that you want to see over and over again because those tend to keep us engaged in social media. And you may be in situations where you have realized you're looking at Facebook or you're looking at Instagram and an hour or two hours go by and you can't believe that you've been on a social media site for that long. But the algorithms are designed to do that. So that's one thing. The second thing that the algorithm is based upon is really something that has potential to be much more dangerous, especially as it's combined with the first thing. That the articles and the posts that you typically see are what, are what most people around you and especially in your friendship circle are, are, are liking or are reposting. The problem with that is for the most part, we know this because the National Enquirer was popular for a long time even though we all knew it was fake, I don't know if the National Choir is still a thing now or not. I think it's maybe out of business. But we all knew it was fake, right? And people would still buy the National Choir or they would read it while they're waiting in the checkout stand. And the reason they would do that, even though they knew it was lies and rumors, is because lies, rumors, and scandals are interesting. And so for the most part, the truth is kind of boring. And so lies, rumors, scandals, conspiracy theories are much more exciting. So people will look at those much more often. So they get pushed up higher on your news feed as well. So when you combine those two things, you're hearing basically all one-sided stuff that is based upon lies, half-truths, and conspiracy theories. That's what typically populates your social media news feed for most people. You can imagine why that becomes very, very harmful. Because in the end, all you end up seeing is maybe one side of an issue, maybe half-truth of an issue, but you certainly don't see the whole truth, and you certainly don't see all perspectives. Now, I don't know about you. But when it comes to understanding and having judgment, I want to see as many perspectives as I can and understand the whole truth of the matter before I make a decision or before I exercise judgment. For many of us who are relying on either social media, the media is like this as well, just in general, media has become very partisan, and also the people that we tend to talk to tend to think like us. We operate from these echo chambers which is formed by a confirmation bias, which just reinforces our view of things over and over again, and we never end up getting challenged by what the whole truth may be because we don't consider other perspectives. And then at the same time, we can't believe that our aunt or our cousin or our adult child who believes on the other side of the political perspective can't see all the things that we're seeing. It's because literally they are not seeing all the things that that you're seeing. They are seeing a bunch of other posts from the other side over and over again entrenching them in their position as well. They have their echo chamber, you have yours. And the result is that we're rarely challenged by the whole truth. We get to a place where we are just reaffirmed in our own positions and we can't believe why those idiots over there can't see what we can obviously see. Now here's the thing. In the end, if we want, in the end of all of this, we're gonna talk about judgment this morning. And one of the things that, you may realize that Jesus says from Matthew chapter 7, is that so many times we are so anxious to remove the sawdust from somebody else's eye that we fail to see the log that is in our own eye. This is what happens when we don't see clearly and can't see the entire truth. And look, I don't think it's as simple as just saying, hey, we need to balance out the two sides because in the end, the whole truth is not always found in just balancing out two sides or many different sides. It's actually found completely somewhere else. So if you're tracking with me this morning so far, social media is good for funny memes, but bad for news. We good? We there? Okay. I see some nodding heads. I'm happy about that. So the question is, where do we get this actual truth, and where do we get the whole truth? Well, as we've gone through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard me say over and over again, That one of the main reasons we're going through this series is because we want to hear clearly the voice of Jesus among all the other voices that are trying to talk to us and tell us what we should think, how we should live, and what we should do, and how we should behave, and how we should see things. And I think when we get to the end of this, this is all about us hearing from the voice of Jesus. When we're talking about the whole truth, we're talking about what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, and obviously in other places, and you, and you know, it, it might not, it's probably not a surprise for you to hear a pastor say that we should, get, we should go to God's words to understand the whole truth. Hopefully that's not a surprise, because it shouldn't be a surprise. This is exactly where we go. This is why we say that God's word is the truth, and I think more, more than any other time, or as much as any other time, we need to know the truth right now in a world that is trying to speak to us and direct us in many different ways. So this, these words that we hear from Jesus are so critically important. And we've been talking about getting to this point where we've been talking about, okay, as we engage in the political process and as we get to this place where we're voting and all these other things, the biggest thing we focused on is not losing our minds and not losing our hearts and staying grounded in the words of Jesus. Now, on the other side of the election, this is not just about voting, it's about living. It's about living in a world with a new president, Living in a world where, there are, where politics and elections will probably never be the same. Living in a world where we are still in a pandemic, we're still facing economic uncertainty. It's about living in a world where people are growing increasingly angry with one another, being more divided and growing more suspicious of one another. But I think more than all of those things, which we could go on and on with that list, more than any of those things, it's about living in a world where Jesus is still on his throne where Jesus is still at the right hand of God, sovereignly carrying one moment of human history to another. It's about living in a world where you have a choice. You can live from the reality that is much like sand slipping through the fingers, and you can get upset at the wind that blows that sand out of your hands and that blows it everywhere around you. You can point the finger and blame everyone else and kick and scream and call people names because things don't end up the way that you would like them to be. And you can just keep doing that until you die. Or you can embrace something more meaningful in life. You can embrace something with substance, something with meaning, something that will actually make a difference in this world and make a difference for eternity. That's your choice. And if you notice so far, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about that choice. It's been providing us with an invitation to say, this is the way to live according to the kingdom. And no matter what you're facing, whether you're a first century Jew under Roman occupation, or whether you're an American in 2020 trying to figure out what it looks like to navigate an increasingly chaotic world around you, this is still the truth. And it's the whole truth. And I've called this message Perfect Judgment today because that's the headline of this section. As we get into Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And the first thing we're going to see is this command from Jesus that says, do not judge or judge not. And so we're talking about judgment, this morning, I think it's also appropriate to talk about judgment because judgment is a hot word right now, right? It comes, it, it, when it comes to living in the world around us, as we've said, judgment is critical. When we talk about this word judgment, it can mean a variety of things. It can mean things like uh, deciding between what's right and wrong, deciding between what's true and false, what's good and evil. It could be more like an intensive action, like passing judgment on someone. It can equate to someone's character, like we say someone, like that person has good judgment, or this person has bad judgment. All of these things are actually within the scope of what we're gonna be talking about this morning regarding judgment. And this is what Jesus addresses from Matthew chapter seven. Now as we read from, seven, uh, from, from verses one through 12 in Matthew chapter seven, which is what we'll be looking at, it may not look that these sections are connected necessarily, but they are connected by this idea of judgment. And so we're gonna explore that here this morning. So that being said, let's look at Matthew chapter seven. If you have your Bibles or you have a Bible app the, uh, and, and the uh, scripture will also be on the screen as well so you can follow along. But Jesus says this in verse 1, judge not that you not be judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's stop right there for a moment. So we go from last week. If you were here with us last week, you know that Jesus was talking about these personal spiritual issues in our lives that relate to worry and concern and fear and anxiety that we experience in our lives versus the things that we should prioritize, right? The things of the kingdom, eternal things versus temporary things. We talked about all of those things last week. Well, then here he branches out to what does it look like in the kingdom to act towards others around us? Branching out into the community, what do these relationships look like? And the first thing he says is do not judge or judge not, as my translation says. Now, you may notice, this may be a familiar thing to you. You may, even if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount before, you may know that Jesus made this statement, do not judge. And I think in a lot of ways, the Sermon on the Mount is almost like Jesus' greatest hits. We see a lot of these things that are sayings or teachings of Jesus that many people know about They came right from the Sermon on the Mount. And even people who don't, know about, who don't know the Bible and who don't know about Jesus and aren't Christians, they know a lot of these sayings. It's almost like if you think about your favorite band, right, if you, you know your favorite band, you know all the albums, you know what they call the deep cuts, right, the B-side songs, and then someone comes along and they're like, well, yeah, I love the Greatest Hits album because it's got this, this, and this. They're not really fans, but they know the songs, right, and this is kind of like what's going on with Jesus, and we hear this sometimes. You may have heard this many times in, in, in some of the conversations maybe you've had with people who are not Christians that are either friends of yours or family members. And you have a discussion, and they may look at you at some point during that discussion and say, especially if you somehow make a moral claim, they may say, well, do not judge. Aren't you a Christian? Didn't Jesus tell you not to judge? Right? And you realize that in that moment that they even know what this says, even though they may have never read the Sermon on the Mount. This is a very popular saying. The question, though, because in most cases when someone's saying that, usually what they're saying is that they know what they're doing is wrong, they just don't want to call you to call them on it. And so that becomes a smokescreen, right? But in the end, the question is, is that really what Jesus means? Does he mean that we're not supposed to judge in any way? Are we not supposed to look at what is obviously wrong and say that is wrong? Or look at what is obviously evil and say that is evil? Look at things that might be good and say that's a good thing? Are we not supposed to judge other people's actions as wrong or right? What exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, first we have to get to the source of what that word actually means. The word judge here that Jesus uses is the original Greek word that is called uh, krono. Now krono can mean a variety of things depending on the context. So it can mean discernment. It can mean evaluation. It can mean judicial litigation, talking about judgment within a court. It can mean to give a reward, to judge someone as worthy of a reward and to reward them for it. It can mean to pronounce guilt or innocence. It can also be used in a way that judges someone's ultimate fate In some ways, for eternity. In other words, the Greek word for judgment here is a lot like our English word for judgment. We can use it in a variety of different ways. So, what does Jesus actually mean in this case? Well, he probably means all of these things as we read through these verses. But first and foremost, when he says do not judge, what he's focusing on in particular is probably those last two cases there. In particular, the things that have to do uh, with the judgment that, that judges someone's sin as guilty or from the standpoint of judging someone's relationship with God or their eternal final state. James 4.12 says this, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As James points out, there is one who is the lawgiver and the judge. He is the one who makes the ultimate judgment between whether someone is saved or not. So who are you to judge your neighbor? Because in reality, we can't see people's hearts. We don't know their relationship with God. It's not our place. It's fully God's business. So that aspect of judgment belongs to Jesus, belongs to God. However, as Jesus begins to progress more through what he has said here in the next verses after verse 1, starting in verse 2, there is more of a context where he begins to explain there is a place where we are actually able to exercise judgment and discernment. And here's what it looks like. He says, essentially, for those who are following him, which, of course, he's speaking to his disciples, you're to judge with the same measure that you have been judged. What exactly does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking to disciples. If we're reading this as Christians, what we realize is that Jesus has called us to himself through his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and for the purpose of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And so what he's essentially saying is, for those of you who have known God's grace, God's mercy, God's reconciliation, that is the posture from which you now judge others. It's the same measure by which you have been judged by God. And certainly it fits with other places in the Sermon on the Mount, like the Beatitudes. Those who have experienced mercy are to live as people who have experienced mercy. Blessed are the merciful. And so it's all about posture. Yes, you can judge between what is right and wrong and bad and wise and foolish and all the rest, but the posture of grace and mercy and the motivation of reconciliation is the place from which we judge those things. It's not for the purpose of condemning. It's not for the purpose of of being in a position of judgment over someone else's life. It's judging what is good and right and holy and beneficial, but judging it as it refers to others from a place of grace and mercy and for the purpose of reconciling. So to be quick to point someone else's sin out, as Jesus says here with this illustration, he forces this home with this illustration of what it looks like for us to have a log in our own eye compared to the speck that is in our brother's eye. And he says essentially, look, when you, lo- when you leap to judge, to judge somebody else's sin, the reality from, the, from, from a place that is not a place of grace and mercy and understanding how God has judged you and Jesus That you're in a place of trying to condemn a person when in reality, you cannot even see clearly the situation in front of you because you're often blinded by your own sin. The motivation and the posture is the key. Now look, uh, Babylon B. if you guys are familiar with that, it's a Christian parody site, often parodies the church. I saw this, if you're a visual learner, I think this will help you understand exactly what Jesus is getting at here. We have a graph of sin here. We have that graph up there, there you go. The relative badness of sin. So you see on there, Right? Sins you struggle with, which is really low a really low bar right down there. And then uh, the red bar is sins that other people struggle with. And if you can't see it, it says, really not that bad on the green one. And then on the red one, it says, whoa, Nellie, that sin is bad. Those other people better start repenting. And then, of course, the study, everybody else's sin is much worse than yours. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. It's calling us to understand that by the same measure that you have been saved by this radical amazing grace, that is the posture that yes, you can judge from, but it must be according to that posture. And I think when we look at that, like the graph just showed it earlier, we have an inability to see something for what really what it is. If you, if you wear, gla- it makes me think of if you wear glasses or contacts, and the moment you take your contacts out or the moment you take your glasses out, depending on how bad your eyesight is, Your eyes can play tricks on you because you can't really see clearly what you're supposed to see. It's much like the log being fixed right in our eye. And so before you judge someone's actions, before you judge their words, their social media posts, even their motivations, the call is to adapt a posture of mercy and grace and love because that's how you've been judged in Jesus. Mercy gives people the benefit of the doubt. Grace is quick to forgive when we believe that we have been wronged, even when the person hasn't intended to wrong us. And love works for that person, not against that person to condemn them. And look, you can be pretty sure that if your goal is to destroy someone else with an argument, or your goal is to destroy someone else with a social media post, which is 90% of social media interactions that aren't memes, meme, it's like, it's, maybe it's like 20% memes and 80% people tearing each other apart on social media, and then like there's 10% in there of baby pictures, That's 110%, but you know what what I'm getting at. Real love doesn't dehumanize someone else, even if it's just online in a social media post. So, Jesus progresses on here. Now, with this next section, you may may have noticed that there is a seeming contradiction here. Because Jesus says on the one hand, do not judge, but then he gets to a place in verse 6 where he says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. Now here's the thing, is that the most straightforward understanding of that metaphor is essentially saying these pearls are the truth of the gospel. And the pigs or the dogs are the ones who are rejecting that truth of the gospel. That's really what this means. Which gets us into a sticky situation because we've been told not to judge the hearts of people and yet the gospel truth is sometimes not supposed to be thrown before people who will trample all over them. What are we to make of this? Well, I think in a lot of ways, this is not necessarily uh, meant to be a prohibition or a command. What Jesus is doing is giving us a statement of wisdom almost like a proverb, saying that there are certain situations where you may realize that by people's actions and by their responses that they're just not open to hearing the gospel. It's similar to another proverb. I don't know if you've heard this one before. I, I came across this in reading this past week. I'd never heard it before either, but I thought it was pretty interesting. It's an old saying about a pig again. I don't know what it is about pigs, but here you go. Never try to teach a pig to sing. It wastes your time and it annoys the pig. So maybe that's kind of what Jesus is saying here, I think. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's ever wrong, uh, a waste of time to share the gospel, but there are certain situations if you get to this place realizing that we have to make a judgment moment for moment there's a tension there about what it actually looks like to live as kingdom people and I think the bigger bigger point in all this is that there is certainly a tension. If you're going to live in this kingdom I think the kingdom of Jesus is pretty clear, it's pretty black and white but when you go to apply it to a world like ours that is full of gray area and that sometimes the difference between our wisdom of understanding what God is saying and how to really live that out and apply it is somewhat murky and we don't see completely how to do that It doesn't fit neatly always into the world that we're living in. So there's a tension. The difference between those two is the tension with which we live in those spaces. And that's the judgment that Jesus is calling us to live in. So the next leads into our next point here, or our next section here that Jesus talks about in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, living in this tension of the world and the kingdom is uncomfortable. But it's what we're called to do as Christians, to live this tension out in this world. And the myriad of daily decisions that we make are not always addressed clearly in Scripture. It'd be a lot easier if there were, right? If we just had this area or this place in one of the books of the Bible that told us about how to handle every daily decision in our lives, even just the big ones maybe. For instance, should I support this candidate or this policy? Should I spend my money here or there? Should I take this job that's being offered to me, or should I keep the current job that I've had for 15 years? Should we move and and buy that house that's available, or should we stay here where we've raised our kids? All kinds of different life decisions, and a myriad of those things happen all the time to us, smaller decisions that we make, and those things are not spelled out for us in the Bible. So how do we make a decision, and how do we make good judgment calls in the midst of that? But on the topic of proper judgment, Jesus tells us to ask, seek, and knock. Now, asking, seeking, and knocking, I think, is an obvious uh, representation of what it means to pray. When we approach the Lord, we are asking in many cases, we are seeking, and we are knocking. But they're not just three different ways to describe prayer. In fact, Jesus is actually raising the intensity level as he progresses from asking, seeking, and knocking. In other words, asking is one level of prayer. Seeking is like persisting in prayer. And knocking is a whole other level. We're knocking and we're persisting until that door finally opens. And this is what Jesus says to do with that tension. This is how we exercise good judgment in the world, that we are people who are constantly asking, seeking, and knocking at the door of God that he might direct us by his wisdom and give us good judgment. The good news in all of this is that Jesus says, in the end, that we can find that our Heavenly Father, when we ask, will answer us. When we seek, we will find him, and when we knock, he will open that door. Martin Luther said this once about prayer, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Look, that's a man who realized that when things begin to get overwhelming, when things get chaotic, when things get beyond our own strength, the first thing that this should point us to as Christians, with a Heavenly Father who loves us, is that it is not to despair or to work harder or to be strong-minded and to grit your teeth and get through it. It is to come to God in dependence through prayer. I think that's the same point that Jesus is making here. And you cannot live the way of the kingdom without asking, seeking, or knocking. We've said this repeatedly throughout the series that whether you start with the Beatitudes, whether you go through all these places where Jesus talks about lust and anger, these things are high standards of living. And what it calls us to is a place of realizing that I cannot do this without God's help. There's no possible way that aside from God's grace, aside from his strength, aside from his presence in my life, there is no possible way that I can live this way. And what it points us to is asking, seeking, and knocking. Praying, but not just prayer platitudes. Seeking, continuing to press in in prayer. And getting to a place that we are so desperate in prayer that we are knocking, knocking, knocking until that door opens. Now, notice that we can find God faithful because He hears us, He sees us, and we can trust that whatever answer He gives us when He opens that door Will be what is good for us and what is best. And notice we say that what is best, not always what we are asking for. There's a distinction between those two things because those two things aren't always the same. He is the one who knows how to good, give good gifts. And he gives them from his perspective of a loving father. It's much like it reminds me a lot of a little kid who just kind of wants what they want in the moment. We've all experienced this with little kids, especially if we're parents, with our children. You know, so. Sometimes we have to be able to say no. They ask us, and they may seek, and they may literally knock on our door to get what they want, right? But that doesn't mean that what they want in the moment is actually what is good for them. And so when they ask, you might have to say, no, you can't have that fourth piece of candy. You've already had three in the past 15 minutes. Or you might have to say to them, "To, to, to them, no, you can't hit your sibling, even though that's what you want to do in the moment. It's not the best thing for you or for them in the long run. Those may or may not have been just personal examples over the past couple weeks of my own. But you see the the point there, right? Our Father actually sees what we need and what is good for us in the end. But the question becomes, can we know what is good for us? Well, I think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That Jesus says, look, this is what is ultimately good for you. And I'm giving it to you as an invitation to come and enjoy Because there are really three major ways that we can read the Sermon on the Mount, depending on where you come from and the perspective you have. One is that you might consider what Jesus says here to be more like fantasy. You read all these descriptions of what it looks like to live in this way, and it's like, man, that's great, and those are wonderful pictures, but does anyone ever live that way? Can anyone ever fully live that way? And so we see them more as just kind of religious sayings or inspirations to just be a better version of who you are, and that's the end of the lesson here in the Sermon on the Mount. Certainly a lot of the phrases and the reasons why these things have become greatest hits of Jesus is because they're inspirational teachings. People take them and they put them on coffee mugs. They put them on inspirational posters. They make their own memes out of them. Wherever you may see it, they're all over the place. Now, it's not wrong for people to to try to do better, but in the end, Jesus didn't mean for us to try to do this on our own. Another way you can look at this is kind of the way that the Pharisees might have looked at it. These were people who looked at these as Stringent religious laws, and so when Jesus comes on and he says, "Not only should you not be, not only should you not murder, but you shouldn't be angry. Not only should you not uh, have an affair, but you shouldn't even lust after." So all of these things that are these high ethical things, the Pharisees might look at that and say, "Well, that is exactly the way you're supposed to live according to the law." And so we will, we will, we will step up the law. We'll step up our obedience, and, and and as an end result, it will be a moral moral legalism system. So with the Pharisees, they often did this. 613 laws in the Jewish law and the Mosaic law. The Pharisees would often build even more stringent laws around those laws so they wouldn't have a chance of even breaking the main law. They might have seen this as what Jesus was doing. So for instance, let's say in the Mosaic law it said you can't wear a dark blue shirt, which it doesn't say, but let's say that it did for sake of illustration. The Pharisees would come along and say, not only should you not wear a dark blue shirt, you shouldn't even wear a royal blue shirt or a baby blue shirt, or you shouldn't even wear a black shirt, because in the light it might look dark blue, and as a result, someone might think that you're breaking the law. And not only that, but maybe you shouldn't even wear purple, which Wes would be really in trouble there, because he couldn't wear his purple pants. It'd be really disappointing for a lot of people. But that's the point, is that they got to this place where they just built laws upon laws upon laws. Is that what Jesus is doing here? I think the third way is really the way that we're supposed to look at this. We're to understand this message from Jesus as an invitation. He meant, for these words in the Sermon on the Mount, to be an invitation to a way of life that only he could give to us. And yes, they're inspirational, and yes, they step up this aspect of what it means for us to live ethically and morally, but from the standpoint of creating this beautiful picture of saying, this is the kingdom that I am inviting you to. And it should be attractive to those who see it through eyes of faith. And so finally, we get to this last verse that really ties it all together. Verse 12, what we know is the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Of all the greatest hits that come from the Sermon on the Mount, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the ones that is most known is probably the one we just read right there in verse 12. The Golden Rule. In fact, this is a teaching that's so familiar to people that many people outside Christianity know it, and they don't even know that Jesus actually said it. You know, have you seen the license plate? That actually, there's an Arizona license plate that says, Live the Golden Rule. There's actually one of those. It doesn't have any reference to Jesus at all. It's just Live the Golden Rule. Now, part of that is because a lot of other religions have this kind of value in their uh, their religious beliefs as well. But it is something that's certainly familiar throughout history. According to historians, the reason why this is actually called the Golden Rule is because a Roman emperor by the name of Alexander Severus in like the third century or so had it inscribed on his wall in gold. So it became known as the Golden Rule. So when Jesus presents this to us, it's not shocking necessarily, but he gets back to this place of, if you want to know what real judgment looks like as you deal with others, this is what it ultimately looks like. How would you want others to relate to you? And more directly, how has God related to you in the gospel through Jesus? Now, in the end, I think we should look at all these ways of living by the kingdom as individuals within a community and be able to say, wow, wouldn't it be great if everyone lived this way? I mean, think about this for a moment. We've got one week left in the Sermon on the Mount series. Next week, we we will end our series. And so I think it's a proper place for us to just pause and think about, listen to all the things that Jesus has said already in the Sermon on the Mount about what it means for us to live this way. And if we actually live this way, what would the world around us look like? What would it look like if people were merciful and they served one another out of love? if all people hungered and thirst for righteousness and for justice what would it look like if we treated one another not as objects to be used for our own lust or for targets of our rage but instead people were pure in heart and gave to those who were in need without expectation of a claim or recognition what if people weren't religious hypocrites what if people told the truth to one another instead of lying and manipulating one another or spreading lies and falsehoods? What if people could really live in a way that they didn't need to get revenge and they could really extend grace to those who did wrong or to those who hurt them? And what if we could live as people who are not consumed all the time by worry and anxiety and fear about every little thing around us, but were able to trust in the God who provides all things? What if we could treat people with the same grace and forgiveness that we have received from God, so that when we judged, it would be from a posture of grace rather than a posture of condemnation and disdain. You know, Jesus once told a parable known as the parable of the pearl of great price. He said the kingdom is like this wonderful, expensive, precious pearl. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, it says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding the one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that one pearl. So in the end, this invitation that goes out to all of us, every person who hears this Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, will either see this as the pearl that you're willing to sell everything for to acquire, or you won't. There's really no in-between. The guy in the parable that Jesus just talked about right here from Matthew chapter 13, didn't put the pearl on layaway so that he could still keep his house and have his money to pay off his new horse. He sold everything that he could so that he could buy that pearl outright. Because he realized that in a lifetime, he could never gain anything that is that wonderful and that worthy and that valuable. And maybe in a thousand lifetimes, he would never see something of value like that again. And in the same way, you'll either see this kingdom and this way of living, and really Jesus as as your king and treasure the pearl that is worth selling everything for, or you will not. I have a $20 bill in my pocket this morning. It's a nice, crisp $20 bill. I think it's real. I don't know, I I don't even know how you tell it's real, but I think it's real, $20 bill. So uh, if I said to you, anybody have a $1 bill in their pocket? You got a $1 bill right now? You'd be willing to trade this 20 for? Trade a 20 for a one, anybody? Any takers, yeah? You got one, Scott? Okay yeah yeah i'd love to do the COVID thing right social distancing i can't i can't really do that so i'm gonna have to say no but it's a yeah no i've touched it though and i've kind of talked and it's there's droplets on it you don't want it all right but if i gave you if i really did give you this twenty dollars for that one dollar bill There's a lot of things you might be thinking as you put that in your wallet and you return to your seat. You might be thinking to yourself, wow, I didn't have enough money to eat lunch, but now I can go to lunch, and now I can take somebody else out. I can take Kirsten out to lunch as well, maybe to Chipotle or something, not anything else really in this area, get you $20 $20 worth of food. But you might be thinking about, wow, I can't believe I got $20 off of that guy. What a sucker. Does he know, does he not know the worth of these two things? You might be thinking... About a whole bunch of different things, a hundred different things. But one thing that you wouldn't be thinking is, man, I really missed that $1 bill that I gave Jay. Right? Because the 20 is so much more valuable. And look, this is what our faithful Heavenly Father wants to give us. And shame on us if it's the $1 bill that we keep chasing after. You know what it reminds me of? Have you seen that commercial with the fisherman and he's got the $1 bill on the end of the hook? And that lady's trying to like grab it. He's like, oh, you gotta be quicker than that, right? He does that whole thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's a hilarious commercial. If you haven't seen it, uh, it, YouTube or something, I don't know. But it's really funny because it presents often what it looks like in our lives to just be jumping and diving and being frustrated over trying to get that $1 bill and never really able to be able to lay hold on it. And in the end, what our Heavenly Father is offering us is this pearl of great price that is more valuable than anything that we could seek after. And I started out with a bunch of funny memes this morning. I want to end with one more meme. It's not really funny as much as it is true. I think it says everything. And we throw it up there, guys, if we got it. Of course, the lion represents Jesus. In this case, it's more of a political statement. But I would say that you can add whatever you want on this side of the equation. That equation remains true. You can add a dollar sign. You can add a little house. You can add whatever you want on that side of the equation that equation still remains true and will remain true for eternity. And so what I want us to think about with that image still on the screen is we've been called and invited to ask, to seek, and to knock. To persist to a place where this captivates our hearts. Don't assume that this happens easily. Spiritual growth is a process That takes time. And it's often wrought with difficulty. It's not always linear. It goes back and forth. It sometimes feels like two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes two steps forward, three steps back. But as we ask and seek and knock and persist, we have the assurance that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will show us in the end what is good and right and worth our lives. And in the end, that pearl of great price will truly be valuable and worth it in our minds because it is beautiful. So I think right now as we hit this place that's almost like a reset button in a lot of ways around us, let's take the opportunity to reset, to become people who ask and seek and knock in every aspect of our lives. I'm ask the band if you would come up, guys. We're gonna start that even right now. As we ask and seek and knock, trusting that our Heavenly Father is faithful and that He gives us all good things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this promise here. I know, I know that there are many of us in this room who are just tired, we are just worn out. and This week did not help us, if we're honest, in terms of how tired we've been and how frustrated we've been uh, in many ways. Whether what turned out for us was the candidate that won or not, the presidency, for all of us, it was emotionally uh, difficult. We were dragged in a bunch of different directions. Maybe we were frustrated, maybe we were caught... Shaking our heads all, you know, throughout the week, maybe, maybe we, uh, maybe we're facing something else in our lives that has just become more difficult over this past week. We got news that we didn't want to hear. We were hoping to hear something else, but we heard what we heard, and it's caused us to be fearful. Lord, it's caused us to maybe lose a little bit of hope. It's caused us to be doubt, to, to be full of doubt or to be even angry. And maybe if we're honest, not even just angry in general, but angry with you. We thank you, Lord, that when we are faithful to ask and to seek and to knock, whatever that looks like, even if that's just us voicing where we're at, even if we can't find the words to fully articulate the way that we're feeling or the way that we're processing something, the way that we're thinking or the way that we're believing in the moment, you tell us to still come and to seek you. And Lord, you compel us to continue to knock and knock and knock until that door is open. In the end, knowing and trusting that you will give us every good thing, and even though it may not look like the good thing in the moment, we can be confident that you are faithful. And I pray for us this morning, Lord, as we consider this invitation from Jesus over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount to present us with this thing that is more beautiful, this thing that is more valuable than anything that we might find in this earth. That You would give us the eyes of faith to see. And Father, that as we think about what it means for us to live in this world, this world that is full of contradictions, this world that doesn't neatly fit the kingdom of God, it's not made to do that, that You would give us the discernment and the judgment that we need. To live in a way that is merciful, that is gracious, to live from the posture in which you have judged us through Jesus Christ so that we would be people who, for the glory of Jesus, live out what we do and what we say and everything that we're about. Lord, would you give us the grace and the faith, the mercy, the discernment, the judgment, the wisdom to do those things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: In just a moment,
1: Thank you guys, I appreciate it. Love the graphic too. Go Broncos. (laughs) Big game today. All right. So, you know, as I've reflected on this year, I think one of the things I've realized is there has been a tendency for all of us to just want to get past all that we're experiencing. It's the easiest thing to do just to try to escape it. I think in a lot of cases, as a pastor, I've been trying to like say, hey, well, we see the end of the tunnel and let's encourage people to pass through this. And then we realize, wow, this thing isn't really over like we thought it was gonna be. And so I just, I wanna say this, I don't know when, Uh, this uh, pandemic is going to be over. I don't know when we're going to get to the end of all the things we're struggling with on a worldwide basis right now. But what I think I know is that God uses these times. I don't mean to say God causes these, but he uses these times as times of pruning. He uses these times as times of pruning back and showing us the things that really matter so that he can produce fruit in our lives. And so if God is doing that in your life right now, take it as a blessing. Take it as a wonderful open door in your life. I think the best thing we can get sometimes when we knock on that door and it opens is, is Jesus standing there with his pruning shears and saying, let's go. Because that is the thing that in the end bears the most fruit. So I want to encourage you with that this morning. It may be painful, it may hurt in the time, but it bears eternal fruit and it, that's what lasts. So uh, we, I want to encourage you, as you leave this morning, uh, we have uh, prayer cards that are located at the table as you leave out those doors this morning by where Shad is standing. Shad, the happy Notre Dame fan. Uh, Very excited about that, I'm sure, this morning. But you see Shad back there, that table that's right in front of Shad. There are prayer cards back there. If you will take a prayer card, if you have something that you want us to pray for as a staff, as a prayer team, we pray over those each week. If you would fill that out, drop it in the offering stands as you leave this morning. We'll make sure it gets to the right place so that we can faithfully join you in prayer. We, we, We look at that as a privilege and an opportunity to join with you. So thank you for doing that with us okay all right guys have a great Sunday have a great week we'll see you again soon thanks
0: thank you for joining us for this week's message North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another and love the world for more information about North please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com